All right, the children are dismissed to Children's Church, those of that age group. And I would please invite everyone else to bow with me as we prepare to enter God's word together. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and that by your Holy Spirit, you want to speak your truth to our hearts and minds today. So I pray, give us open ears, give us open minds, and open hearts to receive what you have for us today. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, uh, Leanne mentioned to me, she, she asked me if I knew that yesterday was Reformation Day. And I didn't know that because I guess this year it landed on Halloween, which isn't always the case. But Reformation Day is, of course, remembering the great uh, reformers from the Protestant Reformation. One of those is Martin Luther. And on our series of the Book of Romans, Martin Luther once said this about this book. He said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. So who here has Romans memorized word for word? Anyone? <laughs> I once memorized the first chapter of it with this ambition, and that's as far as I got, so first chapter I was feeling quite pleased with myself but to get all 16 I wasn't quite up to it but Martin Luther thought that this was the bare minimum that every believer should have it memorized word for word it is the purest of bread and the more you meditate on it the better it tastes now this passage of Romans that we are going to be looking at this morning beginning in verse 21 through 31 I will say that this particular passage in all of Scripture is similar to a delicious, rich piece of quadruple-layered cheesecake. You know that, that cheesecake that's so dense, that it's, and it's so thick, that you take a bite of it, and, and you take too big of a bite, because by the time it gets in your mouth, you realize you're going to be chewing on this for a good long while. It's, it's just that rich. Well, this passage is very similar to that. In fact, it is one of the most rich and loaded pieces of theology that you will find anywhere in Scripture. So therefore, it must be savored and meditated on and, and thought back on many times over in order to be fully understood and appreciated. And so this morning, we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to work through this incredible yet complex passage one bite at a time in order to help us come to a fuller understanding of the incredible scope and, and beauty and power that is in the gospel. So I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, if you have not yet done so. Now, the first thing I will draw to your attention as a summary of this passage is again hearkening back to the great Protestant Reformation. And the phrase, one of the phrases that became sort of a summary of the Protestant Reformation is this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this is the one path, the only way that sinful man can be declared as righteous before God. So now let's look at verse 21 with this as the backdrop. Verse 21, Paul writes, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So in this phrase, apart from the law, means that no works of the law have been, need to be, or can be added to God's salvation by man. Nothing. No work of the law can be added to what God has done. And so in this way, the law of works is completely nullified. And yet, to the one who believes that they can be made righteous by observing the, the law of works, then if you believe that, as the, as the Jewish people predominantly did, they believed that it was by adhering to and fulfilling the law of works that they were made righteous before God. And yet, in the law of works, its constant, relentless demand is always do more. Do more and do more. It's always do, 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 because you have never done enough. And then the question inevitably arises after you have been doing and doing and doing is, when have I done enough? And the answer comes back from the law, never. Never. You have never done enough. As long as you are alive, there is always more to do. There are more laws that you must uphold. And so this is where the gospel, that Paul is explaining here in the book of Romans, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it comes in and it tells us that to be declared righteous before God is not about us having to do anything more. In fact, it is about what has already been done. And so here is the, the great contrast between the law and faith, do versus done. And so Paul makes the argument that rather than having to do something more to be declared righteous before God, all we must do is place faith in the one who has done it for us. All the law and the prophets could do was bear witness to it, meaning that the entire law and prophets of the Old Testament, everyone from Moses right through to Malachi, all of them, all they could do was point ahead to the one who actually has the power to save us. And that is through God's spotless lamb. Verse 22 continues. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So again, the key phrase is faith in Christ. This faith is of such vital importance to salvation, yours and mine, that it can't possibly be overstated, yet we talk about it all the time. But do we really understand what this faith is that we are talking about? How do we understand having faith in Christ? Such a common phrase, but what do we even mean by it? How do we understand it? Well, in his book entitled Fully Alive, uh, a Christian comedian by the name of Ken Davis, he's actually quite hilarious if any of you are, are familiar with him, Ken Davis, if you're into Christian comedy, he's quite good. Uh, you can YouTube him, he's got a whole bunch of clips up there. But he's also written a book entitled Fully Alive in which he recounts an incident from his college days. And so, as the story goes, his class had been asked to deliver a persuasive speech in which they would be graded on their creativity, persuasiveness, and the ability to drive home their point in a memorable way. And so he and his teammates, they, they brainstormed how they could win this competition. So after having gone through it all, they prepared it. They entitled their talk, The Law of the Pendulum. 
the law of the pendulum. And so, getting in front of the class, he spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the principles of physics that govern a swinging pendulum from one side to the other. And so he explained that because of friction and gravity, the law of the pendulum states that once a pendulum is dropped from one side and swings back to the other, it can never go higher than the point from which it was dropped. That's the law of the pendulum. And so if you drop it right here, it can't go back up to here. It's always going to swing back to the same point or a lower point. And the longer it goes, as the laws of physics and, and gravity and friction play on it, it will go lower and lower and lower until it finally stops. And so the law of the pendulum, it can never go higher. So he spent a long time illustrating this, over 20 minutes. He also made a, a visual illustration where he took a child's toy top attached to a three-foot string. He attached it to the top of the blackboard in the, in the classroom, and he made a mark on one side, made a mark on the other, and then released it, and demonstrated visually that, yes, this works. The law of the pendulum is indeed true. So having gone to great lengths to prove to the class beyond a shadow of a doubt that the law of the pendulum works, he then asked the people in the class how many of them believed, in fact, that the law of the pendulum was true and could never be broken. Well, everyone in the class, including the professor, raised their hands. This was true, an irrevocable, irrefutable law. And so the professor, thinking that the presentation was over, began to walk to the front of the classroom. But in reality, Davis was just getting started. He then revealed that hanging overhead from the steel beam in the middle of the class was a 250-pound pendulum made up of metal weights. And he'd attached this pendulum to four strands of parachute test cord. And so revealing this now dangling in the center of the classroom, Davis then invited the professor to sit with his back to the head against the concrete wall on the side of the classroom. Then the professor, getting quite nervous as to what was about to happen next, realized that, yes, what he thought was about to happen. Davis took this 250-pound pendulum and took it up to within an inch of the professor's face. Now, there was enough room for the pendulum to swing across the classroom and right back towards the professor, whose head was against the concrete wall. He then looked at the professor and asked him one more time, do you still believe that the law of the pendulum is true? Well, now the professor stared for a long, silent moment. And finally, with an ashen look on his face, he nodded weakly. Yes, he whispered. And without any countdown or preamble, Davis let go of the pendulum. In a long, majestic arc, the 250-pound pendulum swung across the room, back towards the professor's waiting face. At this point, Davis says, I've never seen anyone move so fast in my life. <laughs> the professor dove headlong to the floor across the classroom to get out of the way. And as he lay sprawled on the floor and all the students in the class were up on their desks, kept believing what they had just seen, Davis pointed back to the professor on the floor and asked the class, does he really believe in the law of the pendulum? And everyone said, no, he doesn't. Now that's not the end of the story, but I'll save the rest of it for a little bit later.
The story illustrates that while that professor stated that he believed in the law of the pendulum, he, he understood the law of the pendulum, he, he, he emphatically declared that, yes, it is irrevocable, it can never, it can never be different. What he really meant was that he intellectually understood the law of the pendulum. Because in the moment of truth, as this pendulum is swinging back to his, towards his face, what his actions revealed was that he didn't truly believe that the law of the pendulum would save him. He believed that in order to ensure his own safety, he needed to add his own action in order to make sure that he was safe. In this way, it was as though he thought he had to add his own works to the law. And so while he intellectually understood that this was true, in the end, he lacked the key ingredient, and that is faith. He lacked faith. And it's the same with God's salvation. Intellectual understanding of it alone is not enough. It can only be obtained by completely abandoning the false belief that you or I can add anything to God's salvation. There is no effort that we need to add to what God has done. It is done. There is no longer a do. It is done. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. It is finished. It is done. And the only do that's left for us is to make the personal decision to place complete faith and trust in Christ alone to save me. That's it. And so as that pendulum of sin and death and hell comes swinging back towards us, we don't even need to flinch, for we are secure in the law of faith. And of this law of faith, apart from works, Paul reinforces the teaching in verses 27 to 28. We're going to jump ahead in the passage to read that. Verse 27, Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is circling back around to make sure his message is crystal clear. He's repeating himself. A faith apart from works. And he contrasts it so far as to say the law of works has been nullified, replaced by the law of faith apart from works. So while the law of works keeps saying do more, do more, the law of faith says done, finished. And so unlike the professor who dove out of the way, all that we need to do is if we have placed faith in Christ is to sit tight. Sit tight in faith, trusting in Christ, what he has already done on our behalf to make us righteous before God. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now let's continue on to take a few more bites of this passage by looking at four of the big, long, loaded theological words that Paul uses in this passage to describe what Jesus has done for us. So now we know that it is done, but what exactly is, is done? What is it? And so Paul gets into explaining what it is that Jesus has done. So our first big word that we're going to dive into is this one. Big word number one, if you're, if you're making notes, you can write it down. Justification. Big word number one, justification. Now, this word is, is long. It's got lots of letters in it. 
And uh, Romans 23, verse 24, pardon me, 23 and 24 is where Paul uses it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here Paul says we are justified by his grace. What does that mean? Well, the first thing that I'll point out is that being justified by his grace is described as a gift. A gift. Therefore, a gift is not something that we can obtain ourselves. Rather, it can only be received. By definition, a gift is something that that we have to receive from someone else. People talk about giving gifts to themselves, but really that's just buying stuff for yourself. That's not a gift. A gift is something that has to come voluntarily from someone else. That is a gift. It can only be received. The second thing I'll point out is that gifts are not something that the recipient deserves. Gifts are, again, by definition, solely dependent on the generosity of the giver. And this is where grace comes in. The definition of grace is God's unmerited favor shown towards sinners. So unmerited meaning it's undeserved. We we don't deserve this gift. So as sinners, we don't deserve or merit being justified, which is why the only way to receive it is as a gift of God's grace, unmerited favor towards us. Now, the third thing I'll point out is that the Hebrew word used here for justified, dikayu, it's a legal term. And the legal term, when used in this context, would be like a judge declaring a defendant not guilty. So to be declared justified by God means I am declared not guilty. Now, the previous verse said, for all have sinned. How does this work? We're we're all guilty, and yet here he says we are being declared not guilty. This means justified, this is the way I always remember it, it's just as if I never sinned. So that's the way I like to summarize it. If that helps you remember it, you can jot it down. Justification, to be justified, is just as if I never sinned. Now let me explain what that means. Warren Wearsby once shared this well-known illustration. He writes this. It seems there was once a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across the continent went across to the continent to go on a holiday. So while he was driving around in his Rolls Royce about Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. And so he cabled the Rolls Royce people back in England and he asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls Royce people flew a mechanic over to where he was located. The mechanic repaired the car without any further questions and flew back to England, leaving the man to continue his holiday around Europe. Well, as you can imagine, the the fellow returned back home to England and he was wondering all the while, how much is this going to cost me? I mean, it's not cheap to fly a mechanic over into Europe, and so I'm sure there's going to be a big bill waiting for me in the mail. And so worrying about this, when he returned back, he wrote Rolls-Royce headquarters a letter asking, what's the bill? How much do I owe you? Well, he received a letter from the office that read, Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything has ever gone wrong with a (laughs) Rolls-Royce. 
It's just as if it never happened. Do you see? It's just as if it never happened. So what justification means for us is that when the day comes, when the day comes, and it will come, that each of us stands before the judgment seat of God. It will come, and we will stand there. And the Bible says that the records will be laid bare, the scrolls will be opened. And they're looking through, and they, they find the name, Danny Green, and here is your record. And when they look it up, and I'm standing there before the throne, this applies to each and every last one of us. If you have placed your faith in Christ, they will look at the scrolls and the declaration will be made. There is no record anywhere in our files that any sin has ever been committed on your side. It is just as if it never happened. Christ has covered it all. Christ has nullified it all. And so when we stand before God, it will be just as if we never sinned. That's why, that's why we call grace amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Because we've acknowledged for the last two and a half chapters of this book how sinful and depraved we are. And yet one day, and we sing this in a song, faultless to stand before the throne. <coughs> Not because we have merited it. Not because we have done it. We can never do enough. It's because Christ has done it all. And we are justified by grace as a gift. Because we can never buy it. We can never earn it. And we're going to stand before the throne, hidden in Christ, and it will be just as if we never sinned. Justified. Incredible. Now, of course, the tricky part of God as our judge to declare us not guilty is that as we've been acknowledging, we are guilty and we deserve justice. So how then can God, as a righteous and perfectly just judge, remain that way while giving us an unjust verdict? Because remember, we deserve, we deserve punishment. We deserve damnation. There is only one way. And that one way is there must be a substitute. There must be a stand-in on our behalf. Someone willing to pay the price for us. And now this brings us to our big word number two. Big word number two is redemption. So we talked about justification. Now we're talking about redemption and being redeemed. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the verb that Paul uses here is a compound word that includes the Greek word for ransom. Ransom. There's been movies by that title. I think we're all familiar with the concept of a ransom being demanded. In fact, I think there was just a news, a news article that an American in Africa was, was kidnapped and held for ransom, and the Navy SEALs went in and rescued him because he was being held ransom. And so when Paul writes that we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he is in effect saying that we have been captured. We, we, we have been captured, we have been held um, captive and hostage, but that now having been redeemed, the ransom has been paid. And Jesus has paid that ransom on our behalf. In Mark 10 verse 45, Jesus himself described that that's exactly what he would do for us when he said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So it's as though Jesus went into this hostage situation and he said, you know what? Take me instead. There will be a trade-off. I'm going to go in and you can have me in their place. So Jesus' death on the cross was that ransom that freed us from the power of sin and the guilt and the condemnation and the wrath that we deserve. Because as, as a just God by rights, we each as sinners deserve to die a terrible death on a cross. And we deserve to be punished for eternity. And God would be perfectly right and just to sentence each and every one of us to that fate. In fact, the law demands it. And so Jesus willingly said, I will redeem them. I will pay the ransom. I will be the substitute. I will be the stand-in and take their place upon the cross. I will take the Father's full wrath against their sin upon my own shoulders. And so through faith in Christ, we are redeemed. Which brings us now to our third big word, and this is my favorite of all of the three, propitiation. Now, some of you will have had some idea of the first two words. How many of you would say you understand what the word propitiation means? Who would be so bold? Oh, there's a couple of hands back there. Okay. Well, propitiation, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, the Greek word for propitiation is translated from the Hebrew word for mercy seat. Now, does mercy seat jog any memories out there? The mercy seat is located on what? The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so we're going back to the Old Testament. Some of you will remember from our series in Exodus about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, sometimes referred to as the atonement cover, which was basically the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there would be the two seraphim with their wings across the top, and the mercy seat was on top. Now, what does the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant have to do with Jesus' blood? Well, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel, and of course that was the original high priest of Israel was Aaron, Moses' brother, he would first make a sacrifice to atone for his own sins, and having gone through all of the ritual purification for himself, he would then take the blood of a, of a goat that had been sacrificed on the altar. And he would take that blood of that goat in a, in a bowl. And he would go inside the tabernacle. And then he would go further and he would enter the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And stored inside the Ark of the Covenant, within it, were the Ten Commandments. And on top of it was the mercy seat. The mercy seat is a lid made out of pure gold with two cherubim carved facing each other. And then Aaron, the high priest, he would take the blood of the goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement or covering for the sins of the nation of Israel. And so remember, while the Ten Commandments are symbolically sitting within the ark, standing as a constant indictment against the sins of the people, you have broken these commands, you have broken these commands. One day a year, God would look down on the mercy seat, and he would see the blood of the goat sprinkled there as a substitute for the blood of the people. He died in their place. The goat died so the people could live and receive God's mercy rather than his wrath. And so just as the high priest made 
propitiation on behalf of Israel by the shed blood of a goat, Jesus, as our final high priest, made propitiation on our behalf. The only difference being he did this not with the blood of a goat, he did this with his own blood poured out on Calvary's hill. His own blood flowing crimson down that cross. He did this so that we too could receive God's mercy rather than his wrath. This is the meaning of he made propitiation on our behalf. Now I know that's a lot to remember, so I'll share with you the one simple trick that I use to remember the meaning of the word propitiation. Some of you this might work for, some of you won't, but the first two letters of propitiation and priest are the same, P-R. So sometimes a little trick like that can help you remember. If you can remember that PR stands for propitiation and PR stands for priest who sprinkled blood on the mercy seat and thereby made propitiation on behalf of the people, it's a way that I remember the meaning of the word and maybe it will help you. And so now we come to our fourth and final big word. And the big word number four is forbearance. Forbearance. The second half of verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So there's that phrase, divine forbearance. What is it? What does it mean? Well, it can be helpful for us to look at the word forbearance from a financial perspective that a banker would use the term forbearance in. So when a borrower, someone who has borrowed from a bank, is unable to make timely payments to the bank on his loan, and the banker doesn't want to foreclose and to take back the collateral, the banker will often enter into what's called a forbearance agreement. In that agreement, the banker agrees not to foreclose on the loan, and they may also agree to change the terms of the loan or even to forgive some of the principal or interest on the loan to make it more manageable because they would rather have some money coming in from the, from the person who has uh, taken out the loan than receive nothing. And so this is what is looked at in the financial world as a forbearance agreement. Basically, they still have a legal right to demand the full amount, but they are choosing to, to in forbearance, be more lenient and to come to a new agreement in order that the person can continue to uh, make payments and to not have the loan closed upon or the assets seized. Now the important thing is that even within this context, the forbearance agreement, the bank or the banker does not surrender any of its rights to enforce the terms of the loan in the event that the borrower doesn't live up to their side of the agreement. They still have the legal right to come down anytime they want to enforce the full letter of the initial agreement. Now, Paul points out that this is exactly what God has been doing throughout the Old Testament period with our sins through history. You see, if God was only just, that would require him to immediately pour out his wrath on man's sin the moment it happened. And so that would mean at the very beginning, the original sin with Adam and Eve in the garden that right then and there they would have suffered immediate death and, and eternal damnation as a result of their sins, right then and there. If God had done that, 
No one could argue that he was perfectly just and righteous to do so. But God has obviously not done that, or of course none of us would be here today. Instead, God has another part of his, of his character that yes, he is just, but God is also merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And so from this side of his character, he has decided in his love for his children, fallen as they were, to exercise divine forbearance. The psalmist summarized that forbearance like this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So many people will seem to view God and look at him in the Old Testament as being this vengeful and vindictive and spiteful God. But in fact, he was just as much a God of love, grace, and mercy in the Old Testament as we see revealed in the New Testament. Because if it were not for his divine forbearance, none of us would have made it. Adam and Eve and everyone who followed after them should have been snuffed out immediately. And while there are, yes, a few occasions on which God did uh, pour out justice and judgment, what we see throughout the biblical record and world history the most common thing is that God is long-suffering. He is patient, and in his forbearance, he does not pour out the wrath that the world's sin deserves the moment they happen. And he's still the same God today. Today, he is exercising divine forbearance upon the world, isn't he? Because when we look around at this sinful, corrupt, and broken world, do you ever wonder why God is taking so long to pour out judgment upon it? Do you ever wonder that? It is because in his divine forbearance, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is divine forbearance. God patiently staying his hand, not wanting anyone to die, not wanting anyone to be condemned to hell for eternity. Instead, he wants everyone to come to repentance and receive his gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now in Romans 3.27, as Paul concludes this admittedly very, very heavy section of explaining the gospel, Paul asks the question, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so here Paul contrasts the law of works, what one must do with the law of faith and what Christ has done. And he has done it all. So what do we have to boast of? What have we added to this to say, yep, that was me. Nothing, not one thing, he has done it all. All glory, honor, and praise belongs to him. And so returning to our earlier story and the law of the pendulum, the professor did not truly believe in the law, and so we see that in his actions as he dove headlong out of the way. He did not have enough faith and therefore the confidence to just sit there and trust that, yes, that pendulum would come close to his face, but the law stated it could never go higher than the point it was released from. So he was perfectly safe. Even if it were to come within an inch of his face, he didn't truly trust it. So now we have to put that in the context of the law of faith. What about you? What about me? What about us? Do you believe in the law of faith? Do you have trust 
that what Jesus has done on your behalf is truly enough to save you? And even as that pendulum of sin and death swing back towards you, do you have the confidence to hold firm by faith believing that Jesus has really and fully justified you, redeemed you, and made propitiation on your behalf? If so, the Bible makes clear that the evidence for your, for your faith or lack thereof will be demonstrated through your actions, just as it was for the professor. In Ken Davis's conclusion on his Law of the Pendulum story, he recounts that one of the most fascinating and unexpected outcomes of his lesson was that after the professor had bailed out of the chair, one of the other students volunteered, put up their hand and said, I'll sit in the chair. And so, the same thing was repeated. The student sat there. And as the pendulum was released, it swung across the room and came back towards his face. And although he flinched, just at the moment where it was the nearest to him, he didn't move. He stayed put in that chair. And once the entire class saw the validity of the law demonstrated, they all wanted to do it. Me, me, pick me. And soon, one after the other, for the next half an hour, every single student in that classroom sat in that chair with their head against the wall and had that pendulum come within an inch or two of their face. But you know what? Not one of them was struck because the law was true and their faith was not misplaced. And so in conclusion, Davis writes, the desire to live out demonstrated faith is not only adventurous, it's contagious. It's contagious. When one was willing to do it, and the others saw that, yeah, this is true. Pretty soon everyone wanted to give it a try. And the same is true for us with the law of faith. When we live out that faith boldly and without fear or flinching, it is contagious as well. Because the fact is, we, of course, are living in a scared and shaking world. Between the coronavirus, government restrictions, economic hardships, political upheaval, Riots and, of course, the upcoming U.S. presidential election. People all around the world see this giant pendulum swinging towards them. And they're diving for cover. They're afraid. What's coming at us next? But as people of faith, secure in the fact that we are justified, redeemed, and had Christ's propitiation on our behalf, we can stand firm. We can stand secure. So may we live out this faith in such a way that it would be contagious, that it would spread from our lives to those around us who also need God's salvation and a relationship with Christ just as desperately as each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that this law of faith is true. It is real. And that for each one of us, Lord, who in a sense, sit in that chair and our own sin and death and, and the forces of the enemy seem to be coming right at us. That it's because of what you have done that we are secure. That there's not one thing that we have to do. The law of works has been nullified because of what you have done. And all we can do now is receive it through faith as a gift. A gift of grace. We have not merited it, we have not deserved it, but you have done it. 
And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this gift of grace. I thank you for each one present who's received it already, and I pray, Lord, that each one of them would just cherish it all the more dear, and that in these times of testing, Lord, that we would stand unmoved and unflinching, and that our faith could be contagious. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone present today who has not had that security of placing their faith in you to receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, that they can make that decision even today. And so, Lord, thank you that this is all you're doing. We give you all the glory and praise for the incredible beauty of your salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.